Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right, all right, all right. Here we go again. Britt Hartley, how are you? I'm doing really well. Things are good. I'm meeting with my um, post-Warman group tonight. I'm looking at forward to seeing them. So things are good. Awesome. We were just talking off the air. What's next week's episode? Next week, we are going to have on, in fact, I don't know her name. I only know um, her from TikTok. So I only know her TikTok handle, but she um, recently left or she left um, a Zen Buddhist community and she's speaking out about the sexual abuse and patriarchy that is rampant in Buddhist centers and her story from Zen Buddhism. And I'm just so fascinated for us to talk about patriarchy and sexual abuse in a different religious connotation yeah. than kind of our history. So that's going to be super fun. And I, you know, I don't think of that kind of thing occurring as a, as a blatant thing collectively happening in Buddhism. Right. But but that's what she says is happening. And you and I were just talking. We'll have to bring it up next week. But the Dalai Lama is in a little bit of yeah, he's bit in of some hot for, water for uh, his behavior that seems to fit that topic, at least as a discussion point, very I well. I can't wait to ask her about it because it's because it's weird and it was icky for those who don't know. There was a little kid who just wanted to give a hug to the Dalai not too Lama. little, like eight years old, nine yeah. years old, ten years old. Yeah. And, you know, he says, give me a kiss, which, which I was okay up until then. And then he stuck his tongue out and then he said, suck my tongue, which mm. of course, like everybody was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, let's and get the he, kid off the stage. <laughs> and he, he issued this apology and the apology was something like the Dalai Lama is very silly with children and he does things that um, are just really silly and playful. And there's, you know, there's nothing mm. behind it, but he very much regrets it. And he's apologized to the child and their family and it was inappropriate and it wasn't, you know, didn't look good in front of the cameras, but there was nothing more than that. Yeah. And it's tough like because Jackson, it was though. like when you tough. say like, Oh, I'm silly and I'm just, you know, I like, yeah. kids. And... if it was in private, I feel like I'd be more triggered. Like if, if the little kid said I was at the Dalai Lama for a private whatever, and this is what he said, instantly I'd be like sexual deviant. Let's talk about this. But there's something about it. Just he is sometimes really silly with children in public. And the fact that there's cameras on him, either it's like dementia and he didn't know that people were watching and he's revealing something that he did do in private or it was just really cringe and awful, but he maybe didn't mean it as nefarious yeah. as you can think about it but It'll be I, I don't know i'm gonna It'll ask you see what our guest thinks yeah yeah i'll ask her for sure and then before we start um we had this listener question that i i don't even know if you've gotten into this it says i don't know exactly where to communicate a request to anyone here but are you willing to discuss the background of chad daybell and that kind of religious rabbit hole have you gone into that a lot on your end i am only 
at a surface level aware of this story? I mean, I know it, right? Like I know what happened. I know that this has been like a kind of a, a breakout called of Mormonism and lots of people followed and the preppers. And I, I understand the story. I don't know the fine details. Um, dealing with the deaths of children uh, isn't an easy thing for me to sit and do. So mm. my, my insides would rather focus on where the Hill Kimura might be. Mm, you I know? see. Um, I will say for me being in Idaho, where we were all kind of watching this unfold in real time. And it was, it was local news for us just every day. Um, we, I kind of went all in on this one, I will say, because it was like, you know, I do like watching true crime and I think you do too. Mm -hmm. Some, and then there was something about it, like the, the religious angle of it just made it super interesting to me. I did, I did, there were so many conversations I had with girlfriends where it was like, you know, we hope they're still alive, but it's not looking good. Um, and I do recommend Heather, Heather pointed out my favorite podcast that's been done on this is the hidden podcast where they go through, you know, psychology analysis. Um, and they really do a good job going through Lori's life and Chad's life and all their psychopathy. But I do think that there's some things that you only recognize kind of like as a Mormon looking at this or as a post Mormon looking at this, that would be really interesting to get into, but it just started this week. And I actually have a sweet friend who um, is going down to the courthouse to just follow it because we've actually had like girls nights here where we've kind of watched various aspects of this because it's, it's interesting. It's tough. It's tough. I will say the day that they explained, you know, the nature of the children's bodies, the, you know, the state that they were in that I I'm with you there, that that's actually tough to watch. I, I like digging more into the site, you know, the psychology, yeah when they were 25 and that I can go into full force. Um, but yeah, the, the kid stuff is hard. Yeah. I don't have a lot to say. Like it, I should be willing to kind of investigate and share with our audience. Cause I obviously not this podcast, but another podcast I cover specifically Mormonism and um, I probably should tackle it. And yet everything in me goes like, don't just leave it mm -hmm. alone. You're going to be icky mm -hmm. and not, not enjoy your yeah. inner feelings for a day or two. And we're going to just follow your gut on that one. But um, for those in Idaho, it's it's definitely something that, that we're watching over here. Mm. All right. So for today's episode, we kind of have a shorter shorter episode today. Just something, just a short and sweet idea to leave with you, listeners. And it's going to be on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And before you just shut this off and say, I learned this in, you know, psychology 101 or whatever class you've seen this pyramid, even in high school and middle school, you'll see this pyramid. We're going to do um, Maslow's unpublished work. And towards the end of his life, he started to put together, I actually think that there's something above self-actualization on this kind of pyramid. And it went unpublished for a long time because it was in his journals. And so we're going to dig into the hierarchy and how to kind of look at this in terms of human development. Bill and I just look like to look at any tool that you have for describing human behavior. It's like all of them are a little right and all of them are a little wrong. They're just helpful. Uh, but I really want to dig into this um, unpublished kind of peak of the pyramid that he was really working on before he died. So stay with me, even if kind of the beginning of this is a little familiar. 
So, all right, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And while I'm while I'm setting this up, Bill, if you could find maybe one of those pyramid pictures for us to refer oh, yeah. to, no, no and problem. then I'll just kind of start rolling here. So the the main thesis from Abraham Maslow is that humans are driven by stages of need, and that um, so a quote from him: a part a peculiar char characteristic of the human organism. Is, when, is that it is dominated by a certain need. And so for the chronically and extremely hungry man, life tends to be defined in terms of eating. And so you can even read this in books. If all of the analogies are about eating, it's because this people, they're hungry. Like that's the analogy. Even, even Jesus talking about food and water all the time is because people are hungry. And so at the bottom of this hierarchy are physiological needs. So food, defining things in terms of eating. As those baser needs get satisfied, we find ourselves needing more and more sophisticated things. So shelter, love, self-esteem. And then at the pinnacle of the pyramid that we usually see in textbooks is self-actualization, which is this idea that we can realize all of our potential and become everything that we can be kind of thing. And so most of us have seen this. Um, in textbooks somewhere in the top of the pyramid is self-actualization, but he was really working on separating out. Um, there were aspects of self-actualization that he thought were actually self-transcendence, where it's no longer about completing the goal. It's about something even bigger. And so we're going to talk about that. So first, I think we'll just start at the bottom the bottom of this pyramid and then just kind of work our way up just to get a sense of this in terms of human development. So for stages, the first one is just physiological needs, air, food, drink, shelter, clothing, warmth, warmth, sex, and sleep are our basic needs for human survival. It will be the first thing that motivates our behavior. And if these aren't satisfied, the human body cannot function and, um, this becomes the major need on, you can't do anything else until these needs are met. And then once you have a full belly, have rest, have um, clothing, have shelter, the next thing that you're gonna need is just a sense of safety. You want some order, you want some predictability, you want some control in your life. Um, and this can be fulfilled by family, society, religion. So police, schools, business, religion, um, emotional security, financial security, law and order, freedom from fear, social stability, property, well-being. And it's really interesting um, that like monkey babies, they did an experiment where they had two um, fake moms and like, you know, wire robot moms. And one of them was uh, just a wire robot that had the milk, so had a bottle attached to it. And then the other one was soft and, and fuzzy, but didn't um, have any milk. And so what the baby monkey would do, and it's kind of sad, <laughs> these baby monkeys are definitely traumatized, um, but the baby monkey will drink milk from the wire robot. And the second it's done with milk, it'll go over to the other, um, you know, fake monkey mom that's fuzzy and snuggly and snuggle up to it. And so like, as soon as he got enough food, he would leave that, um, 
he would leave that one, even though the milk was attached to the wire mom in order to go to the snuggly mom, even though it didn't have food. And so you could see it actually happen with a monkey where they got the food first. The second they got to the food, they went to something that felt safe and warm and, and cuddly and, and all of that, even though that one wasn't the one feeding it. Mm. All right. Yeah. Thoughts there. The only thing maybe to set just kind of an idea forward, this is also very privilege based and we don't think of it that way, but human beings or any other species that works along these same lines. And as you point out, primates certainly do is that uh, it is privilege. The further up this pyramid you are, the more privileged as a human being you are. And so you and I are very lucky that we first, we, we live in America. We are for our whole lives, essentially our physiological uh, needs have been met. Our safety needs have been met. Our sense of love and belonging to a large extent has been met, which has allowed us to move into these other three quadrants or the other three parts of the pyramid where uh, we get to work on things, read books and learn stuff. We get to do a podcast. We, we get to uh, focus on meditation and Buddhist ideas. And all of that is privilege based. And, uh, we ought to recognize that the folks who do not have that privilege are much more limited. And rather than the judgments the world does for people being ignorant or naive to information, for instance, it really is, it really is an awareness that their lower needs likely aren't being met. If you grow up in Compton, LA and in an urban area, that's high crime, the chances that you're going to read Jack Cornfield or Eckhart Tolle or Brene Brown are slim to none. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it is privilege based. It is. There is a lot of privilege and it. It can really change how you react to things. And we're going to talk about this more at the end. Cause I have a bunch of questions for you at the end here, Bill, sure. that I want you to riff on um, about this kind of privilege thing. But just to follow up with what you're saying, I, I think when I was first leaving religion, I had this like, you know, you have some anger that is healthy to go through. Anger is is the best way to say, you know, some of my boundaries have been violated and I'm going to reclaim them. Um, but some of that anger was just wanting to like blow up everything, like burn it all down. Right. And then, you know, you, you hopefully get a little wiser later on and realize that if you just burn down every institution until we all until everyone loses a sense of safety we not you know we may not be able to make it to those later um stages of adult development without some of these safety institutions in place no you know even though they are problematic every single one right and so it's like how do we get more people to be able to get each stage so that every person can have that experience of really having the opportunity of saying, you know, what could I really be? What could I really do with my life? Um, we'll talk about know, that more at the end. Yeah. There's, and again, I know some of this will get into kind of the ground you want to cover later, but uh, Lee Mortensen says, this is why poverty is desirable for a capitalistic system. People are distracted from higher Maslow levels when they are focused on survival. So they're less likely to rebel. I don't know that necessarily capitalism, but even just, all political systems, right? Like socialism and communism keep you down at the bottom of these. Like everybody's equal, but at a minimum, right? Um, capitalism seems to say like, hey, let's stay distracted on other things. The reality is that 
in order to create a healthy system, you have to value every human being within that system or that tribe, essentially having easy access to the first three of these. Mm. Like providing the first three as just your right to them. You have a right to your, your basic needs being met. You have a right to feeling safe and secure, and you have a right to love and belonging. You now give people the tools that they can begin to move into those upper three, and then the entire society transforms. Mm. Uh, but anyway. And that was really, um, I'm following one of our guests that we had on a couple of weeks ago, Beyond God and Religion is his, is his handle on TikTok. And he's doing this whole TikTok thing on, on the founding fathers and what they hope for the country. And you can see some of this language in the founding fathers and wanting to keep religion out of it because the the goal was to try to build a society where you could access safety and individual rights and love and be, and love and belonging and all of the, these things, um, a right to happiness in order to separate that from religion. So it's not tied into theism or certain truth claims that are, you know, falsifiable. And so you're trying to do that in society so that it's more stable and, um, I mean, it, it is one of the things that makes America so great is that separation between let's see if we can get these without depending on a religion um, so that hopefully it lasts a little bit longer than, you know, most religions do. Yeah, totally. All right. So love and belonging needs, belonging to um, interpersonal relationships, affiliating, connectedness, part of a group friendship, intimacy, trust, acceptance, receiving, giving infection and love. This is especially strong in childhood and can override the need for safety as witnessed in children who cling to abusive parents. And I think we talked about this a little bit when we did attachment theory about how this can get really messy because the kid um, is unsafe with, with certain actions of the parents, but then they need that safety and belonging so much that they're torn in these really weird ways. And it just is, is so hard for your psychology, but you can, your need for belonging to your family can be so strong that you will defend abuse. You will actually put at risk your safety, which is, you know, the, the level kind of underneath love and belonging, because this is so important in childhood. And so if you have an abusive parent, um, you're constantly kind of battling in between these two safety and, and love and belonging. And so it's like your mind will develop coping mechanisms and disassociation or whatever you're doing so that you feel safe so that you can get that love and belonging, but it's all messy and all mixed up. It, it even plays out, you know, you say children, it plays out in spouses who are abused, right? It plays out in uh, Stockholm syndrome when uh, mm. folks are kidnapped or held against their will, they develop some sort of uh, affection for the people who have them held simply because they see themselves as uh, some degree of safety and their basic needs being met as long as they have this connection with the person who's who's essentially kidnapped them or holding them against their will. Yeah. And how many women are honestly in marriages that they would get out of tomorrow if they could have a way that they could be out with their children and safe, right? Because totally. leaving relationships is the most dangerous time totally. for these relationships, yeah. right? Yeah. So it gets it, it gets really messy in there and it's 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 tough and you can see 
you can see this in some of the other episodes that we've done. The next one, so let's say that you're you're eating, you're secure, you have some sense of, of belonging, you have family that shows up for you. The next thing that will kind of drive your behavior then is then who am I? So a feeling of accomplishment, self-esteem, um, and Maslow kind of does this at two levels. So esteem for yourself, dignity, achievement, mastery, independence, and then a desire for reputation or respect from others. And so something that I think is really missing in spiritual discussions and the world of spirituality and woo is that it's all about dissolving your ego, dissolve your ego, dissolve your ego. And we don't sometimes realize that the healthiest thing that you can do to dissolve your ego is to first have an ego. Like you have to do that first. You can't skip that. And so there's so many times that I think that there's, there's this, especially from male voices, do things to dissolve your ego when there's so many people who haven't gotten the chance to actually build that sense of self, that sense of respect, that sense of reputation, that sense of pride and mastery of themselves. And especially I see this with women who never got to fully develop that because they were always kind of in this deference, people pleaser, patriarchy kind of religious situation. And then they go out to try to do spiritual things and it's like dissolving the ego, but that just makes them feel super depressed because they never actually got to finish this stage. And so I wish there was more positive talk about this stage because it seems to get a lot of like negativity um, for you know, because in the later stages, you actually want to chill this out a little bit, but you have to do this first. And I don't think that that's mentioned enough. Yeah, no, no, totally. And the other thing I noticed too, is it feels as though the bottom three are, are a direction moving towards you, right? Like you, you need to have these things so that you can just be okay in the world. And the top three seem to be you moving back out into the world to do something. And, and I, that just struck me as I was sitting and looking at the pyramid and you were describing mm -hmm. it. It seemed like they're, the bottom three go one direction and the top three go another. It's almost like this concept of a nest, right? Like we see animals that you're in a nest and you're secure and you're safe and you're being fed. And then at some point you need to fly off, but you can't skip the nest. You can't just be born and go off and fly, right? And we're not that different. We like to think as humans that we're different sometimes than these animals that have this incubation period. But like this is our kind of incubation period so that we can fly the nest yeah. and so maslow says that this need for respect and reputation is most important for adolescence and precedes real self-esteem or dignity so you actually have to have someone else so when you're a teen and this is why teens are so affected by what people are thinking of them is because in order for you to move into your own real authentic self-esteem, it almost has to be kind of um, modeled for you from others first, right? And so you begin to think, I have worth and value because people around you start saying you have worth and value. And so it's like this, um, it's like this thing that has to be modeled from the outside and so they're very sensitive to what people are saying of them and how they appear and how they look even and who's saying who about, you know, what about who and all of that. But it's healthy, especially for adolescents, because once if they can have that healthy modeling of having accomplishments and having some worth and feeling valued, that becomes their own self-talk at that age.
And yeah. so you need that too. All right. So let's say you are one of the lucky ones really in the lottery of life. You got food, you got security, you got family and friends. You have something when you were a teenager and a young adult, maybe you were a great swimmer and you won some, you know, local swim meets or whatever it is. You have some kind of sense of self. This is me. I like these things. I don't like these things. Um, then of, you're going to spend some time there really in esteem because that's going to be, you know, when you start working as an adult. And so you're going to still be driven by your status and prestige and making money and um, going up the corporate ladder. And then you'll reach this phase of self-actualization, which for Maslow, while he was alive, um, was the highest level, and that's the realization of a person's potential and self-fulfillment and personal growth. And this level of need refers to what a person's full potential is and the realization of that potential. Um, Maslow describes this level as the desire to accomplish everything that one can and to become everything that one is capable of becoming. Um, you can focus on this very specifically, um, but it also begins to really just come from your sense of self in general. So for example, um, you might have a strong desire to become an ideal parent. And the thing about self-actualization is being, being in your mind an ideal parent is actually maybe more important than the actual relationship with the child. So when it moves from I want to be a good parent or I want to be the best athlete or I want to be a great lawyer. And when you start to make that move towards transcendence, it starts to split off from self-actualization where I don't care if I'm seen as an ideal parent or if in my head I feel like an ideal parent. The actual thing that is of value is this moment with this child and just really like losing myself into it. And that's a sense of meaning that's more than just your goal. It's more than just, this is who I want to be. It's actually starting to then transcend. Yeah. And I, I want to share a couple of thoughts. So you pointed it out, this pyramid used to have as its top stone, uh, that self-actualization. And it, it strikes me one, it strikes me that Maslow had some of his own spiritual shifting. Like he, the only way he could have recognized there was a missing piece towards the end of his life is that he experienced something that told him so, right? And, and so he seems to have had some awakening process where he realized that he's being drawn to something greater than self-actualization. The other thing I, I think that strikes me is um, the idea of self-actualization. You're still trying to figure you out and to achieve something and to be great at the thing you're great at. But inevitably, any of us who have these bottom three or four needs met, we end up in some sort of midlife crisis um, because we realize that the rat race that we were doing, the, the, the hamster wheel we were on, it never led to the place that we believed would lead us to contentment and fulfillment and being happy. And I just note that self-actualization is still part of that rat race. Mm -hmm. And this move, and again, I'll let you get into it, but this move from self-actualization to self-transcendence seems to be a shift from focusing on how can I accomplish what my life needs to be, uh, to have meaning and be useful, 
um, to how can I be of use to others? And I, I just find that move to be at the center of all inner work Yeah, out there. And you're totally right with your intuition that there seems to be some spiritual work that's going on with Maslow. And so what happens is he gets kind of his pyramid. He actually never wrote a pyramid. You know, people kind of published the pyramid after him um, or they just kind of made it look really nice in a graphic. But he did think it was a hierarchy. He just never kind of wrote it down in a pyramid. But um, as he got older, it began to nuance and he began to see something that he didn't see before because of his own kind of spiritual growth. And there's two things that really changed with him. And one of them is that he realized later on in his life that the hierarchy is not as rigid as he thought it was. So at the beginning, and especially like, you know, e even you and me, like when you're younger, you try to, you know, everything is according to this diagram of human nature, right? It all fits into this theory. And then as he gets older, he realizes that there's people are just way more complex than that. And so what he realizes is that there are some people based on personality who will trade things all the way trade things around in their pyramid of hierarchy of needs. So for someone who is extremely high in creativity, they may, they may um, like the need for creative fulfillment may supersede even the most basic needs. And you can think of this with starving artists. There are some people personality wise who would rather be homeless painting something and creating something than, you know, getting some, job that they hate in order to have a house and do the things and all of that. And so it's like we like it's like we can shift some of these things based on our personality and he didn't see that before. And so there's mm -hmm. more flexibility in this than he realized. And then the second thing which is what you alluded to is that he realized that self actualization in practice happens very seldom in his studies so the people he studied in order to kind of get this pyramid going, he said it was less than 1% of the adult population had the privilege, like you were talking about, to be able to get to this place. Um, and then he also began to see that there was something, even in that 1% of people who could say, I'm really um, fulfilling my potential and I'm really kind of who I wanna be in the world, that there was an even smaller percentage of those people who were not as focused on what they were becoming, but what they were contributing to. So something bigger than themselves. And so what's wrong with self-actualization? So some of the criticisms that Maslow and others had with the idea of self-actualization was that it was only directed at the individual and it excluded a concern for others. And so a self-actualized person under this definition might care for others, but in a way of satisfying their own needs. And I think we know, I mean, this is a trap I think a lot of mothers fall into where the look of what it means to be a good mother and the image of what it means to be a good mother supersedes actually having a good relationship with your child, right? Mm. Um, which are kind of two different things and they can start to separate there. 
So what is self-transcendence? Specifically, Maslow thought that self-transcendence was more defined by peak experiences, which we've talked about in various episodes, especially our awe and transcendence episode, if you want to check that out. So Maslow defined peak experiences as feelings of limitless horizons opening up to the vision, the feeling of being um, more simulates of being simultaneously more powerful and also more helpless than ever was one before, feelings of great ecstasy and wonder and awe, the loss of placing in time and space, um, the conviction that something incredibly important and valuable had happened. Basically, this you know peak experiences, peak spiritual experiences, where it's really about being and not doing. It's the sep- it's it's going from the doing to the being. And um, he, when he was asked, okay, who is the most self-actualized, self-transcendent person that you know, they were kind of expecting him to say, you know, some guru who sits on a mat or someone who does, who did just amazing, amazing work in the world. And he said it was his wife's mother who on paper didn't do anything worthy of any kind of medals, but she just showed up in the world in a way that was just totally her and it was just totally being, and it was love, and it was transcendent, and she um, just kind of helped you induce these moments of wonder and awe and beauty, and you would leave these conversations just feeling so filled, and he said that it was her. So it doesn't have to be anything amazing. Like, you don't have to be the new guru in order to be self-transcendent. It was more It was more this step from doing, from selfishness, from how do I appear to being itself and everything that you do coming from your being in this kind of more flow state peak experience kind of thing. Yeah. And it, uh, again, it seems as though self-actualization is about being the best version of yourself, but also with an awareness that you're trying to get ahead of everyone else, right? Like I want to be the best at the thing I do and I want to Uh, essentially be known for, for being the expert in that field or being the one who invented this or being the person who accomplished that. Um, It it really seems to be still a sort of being self-centered and uh, self uh, transcendence really seems to be getting out of yourself and realizing that the collective good or the collective progress of society almost assuredly is of more value than your own life. And hence, you begin to take up some cause that isn't about you at all, but rather making the world a better place. Yeah, he he's so how he says that was um, that self-actualizers can experience peak experiences from time to time, but you haven't quite moved into that space. And it's when you transcend the self, you become like you're saying part of something bigger than the self. You de- you transcend even the ego that you developed at earlier stages. So while it was really important for you that you dress in this kind of way and you like these kinds of things, that becomes really unimportant. And you realize that was just kind of clothing that you can that you put on and armor that you put on that you can actually take off. Mm. Um, more one with nature more one in relationships so the the parent child bond with a transcendent ego is 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 an actual bond of of synergy instead of you need to make sure that i always look like the ideal parent and you need to act in a way that reflects that i'm a good parent right which is all ego right yeah. um 
and that these experiences bring positive emotions like joy and peace and a well-developed sense of awareness. You can um, get into these states of serenity where you can actually kind of last in these peak experiences for longer and have them more often. And so it wasn't explored earlier because he did die before he was able to publish his thoughts on self-transcendence and this thing that he was seeing that was different than self-actualization. Um, but then he died. His personal journals were not released until long after his death. And then, like we talked about when we did the Stutz interview, psychology for a while kind of didn't know what to do with this, with these thoughts of his, because they this this is wrapped in language of mystical, right? This is all mystical language. Transcend the ego. Be part of something bigger than you. Peak experiences, flow experiences, different states of consciousness. And... Um, you know, psychology has had, you know, some hesitancy about going into things that it kind of feels are too woo. And so now that there's a little bit more space in psychology for spirituality, we're starting to see, you know, this being published and talked about more. Whereas in the past, it was like, well, that doesn't make sense to us. So we're just going to leave it out. Yeah. And there are so few people who are at least far enough up this pyramid to at least sense self-transcendence is a higher thing. In other words, if you're at the esteem level, there's no way you could even comprehend self-transcendence. If no. you're at the safety level, the sure as hell is no way you can comprehend self-transcendence. You really have to be in the self-actualization mode uh, at that part of the pyramid to even begin to sense that there's something more than this. And, yeah. and, and so it really, again, it's, it is a privilege base that of course, 95% of human beings couldn't have understood that self-transcendence was a higher step in the pyramid because they weren't in any place to even begin to sense that. Yeah, and I think Janice Spanglers has talked about it before that she gets very upset when people are trying to push self-transcendence on people that never develop self-esteem right? Like never, you, you can't, you can't skip there. It's not healthy for you. It's not spiritual for you. There are some people where the best thing that they can spiritually do is go to a place of safety. Even that, even if that is maybe a religion, right? Mm -hmm. Like that may be, we'll talk about that later, but um, it, we can't just go in and say, okay, it would be like going to a baby bird and saying like, you're free. And it's like, it's just going to fall. Like it doesn't even know what the hell you're talking about. Like yeah. it's not ready. Yeah. Um, and so now that kind of this has been out for a while and people, you know, psychology is now talking about this further modern research has been done to try to figure out what he was kind of alluding to with this transcendence. And so from that more modern research, two parts of this transcendent level has kind of separated on its own. So, I mean, you can keep doing this forever really, but um, there seems to be a distinct difference when they were kind of studying people who are really living from their being. Um, there, there's a difference between I transcend and I help others transcend. So the first level of self-transcendence is what is my calling, which is different than just your job and your, who you are in your relationships. I'm a mother and I'm a brother, you know, I'm a brother, I'm a sister, whatever. Um, and really that self-transcendence is what is, what is your calling? What can you do that no one else 
can do just like you can in the corner of the world that you're in, right? And it's it's a life goal of contributing something valuable to others. But then there's even um, another level to that, which is I'm helping others find their life calling. So like there's a difference between I am doing this, this is my calling, and now I'm going to help others find their calling and getting some momentum in the community around you and building these, they called it in the research, virtuous circles, where you're helping people um, move through these stages towards self-transcendence, and then the ripples just kind of start happening around you, and you start to have a, a real effect on the world. And so the data shows that young people will seek and focus on personal transcendence first, and that often later in life, that will move to more collective goals. So it may be that like, when you're younger, you want to really focus on your personal meditation practice. And maybe when you're older, you really want to develop a Sangha community because you want to help others through the journey and help them gain tools for them. And so there seems to be a difference between those two things. Yeah, I, I just find anything it, there. Yeah. I just find it interesting that uh, our motivations change and, and why wouldn't they? Because the below the needs from below in that pyramid pyramid are finally um, provided for or met. And so I, I think of uh, times in my life where I was newly married, we had small little children I was working at a job and paying my religion, you know, 10% of my money. And I was struggling to meet just the basic needs of our family. We were eating, you know, hot dogs, fried bologna, chicken nuggets, and pizza every week, you know, for mm -hmm. dinner. Because we didn't have the money to buy a healthy or decent meal. And my focus was entirely like, let's get home. Let's fix something on the house. Let's get to bed. Let's get up. Let's go to work. Let's get home. Let's fix something in the house. Let's go to bed. Let's get up. And you don't have much time for anything else. And the moment you get a little further ahead, and again, I, I certainly wasn't deeply poor compared to a lot of people, not just in this country, but then you start to consider other places in the world that are levels of poverty are so much more significant. And the moment my basic needs were met, you know, I always felt like I was safe. That wasn't an issue. Love and belonging, I think, was present. But that basic need wasn't. And even though the needs above it were, I was stuck at that lower that lower one. And until each of these is met, they don't have to be met in order, but until they are all met below, you can't work towards the ones above, at least generally speaking. You might find a person here or there. Um, and a good example... No, no, not, not even a good example. So to have to have those all below and it could be hit or miss. Like you might not have love and belonging, but you might have uh, safety and uh, your physical needs met. And maybe something else in your world gives you a sense of esteem. Um, but until you get that love and belonging, you don't have the time and effort to put into developing. It might be lucky. You might be lucky that it's handed to you. Uh, I, in a sense, I had safety handed to me. I had a house. I wasn't really worried about losing it, even though we weren't uh, eating very uh, well as a family. I felt safe, but it was handed to me. I didn't necessarily do something for it. I was always concerned about the lower needs that weren't being met. Um, anyway. Yeah. And I think 
I, I think we do have to keep in mind that when we're talking about self-transcendence, sometimes we get this vision in our heads that, oh, this is like someone who sits on a mat all day and like they have transcended their ego and all they do is just teach people how to meditate or something like that. But this this can come in just more ordinary ways. And if I were to embarrass you for a second, Bill, there are um, the way that this podcast got started is because you had done so much work on your own personal progress. And then you sent a message out to the world saying, we need more female voices. I really want to support this, right? So it's different than seeking your own calling in your own, your own podcast. And you started to say, I want to help others build their podcast and build their voice and have this journey too, because it's such a valuable journey. And then you and I will have times where, you know, when we're sitting here having these conversations, we're not driven by, oh, how many likes are we getting right now? And how many people are following this podcast? And, oh, it's not enough. And it's, we're not going to reach our goal of this many people to listen to this episode. We're, we're not driven by kind of that end goal. There's something that happens, not all the time, but sometimes where I'm, I'm, I'm saying something really from my soul and doing my own thing over here. And then it brings up something in you. And then we start to get the synergy going and we get into kind of almost this flow state of discussion where uh, of synergy and it's really beautiful. And we, we leave the conversation just feeling so filled and we don't check how many people actually listen to that or how many people donated because of that episode. You know, it's because it's coming from our being itself, right? It's coming from our heart. And so it can be, as simple as I think what you did to start this podcast, which is I really love podcasting. I really love how I found my voice and I really love how it helps me progress and the people that I meet and everything. And I want to help others have that journey too. And it, it was just, it was just something you posted online and then we started podcasting and then I've met people and I've coached people and then they've coached people and there's ripples. There's ripples from you just offering that gift from your being for no other reason than, than this is a calling that calls to me and I want help, to help others find their calling too. And I think that's really beautiful. It's interesting you brought that up. So we hadn't practiced that. That wasn't something that was in your no. mind. <laughs> no. Um, it, it, when you mentioned all of that, I was in my head thinking about how there were lower needs that suddenly weren't needs anymore. Um. I felt safe and secure in the entity that I had originally created, Mormon Discussion Podcast. Mm -hmm. And I made it into a nonprofit. And it was finally big enough where I was being able to go, like, I can see an end in sight where I get to step away from work and I get to uh, focus on trying to bring information to people full time. And uh, it was in the midst of taking like a breath and going like, I'm okay. This yeah. is, this is going to, at least for the short term, this is going to be great uh, in terms of how I'm doing and I'm not, I'm not worried about tomorrow and trying to scratch and claw and get, get another follow or whatever. So it finally was a point in my life where I could now look around and go like, how can I help somebody else? So I just thought it was interesting, interesting. You brought that up and it very much connected to lower needs being met. And now I finally could take a breath and do something like this. Yeah, that's really beautiful. So this has all been building up to one question that I want to ask to, to you, Bill, to you people listening, to the people who are following this live. This is the question that I've been thinking about. So all of this has been building to this question. So my question is, as we talk about religion 
a lot on this podcast and how to deal with it and the tools and all of that. Does religion become for many the thing that gives you the very wings to help you fly out of its nest? So does religion give you the tools that allows you to break away from religion? So something from my life for people who don't know my full story, um, I was kicked out of my home at 16 for having premarital sex and I was living at an aunt and uncle's house and I had lost everything. So, right. So safety, love and belonging, esteem gone. Right. So I'm 16. I have an opportunity then to leave Mormonism. I didn't, I didn't believe it. I didn't have a quote unquote testimony like you would call it. Um, But it was so, it was so unsafe. Like I'm 16, there's no phones, right? There's no cell phones where I can like find things and make my way in the world. It's like, if I don't find some way to make peace, and this is all subconscious, right? But it's almost like this subconscious drive that if I don't find some way to make peace with this religion and this family, I have nothing out here. Like I am out here in the wilderness and I'm going to die out here. And you can see that maybe subconsciously, when you get those little kind of nuanced Christianity messages, it was almost like a life raft. Like, oh, okay, there's some really pretty aspects of Mormonism or Christianity over here, enough for me to go back into community so I can get the safety and love and belonging because it was so traumatized to be kicked out of my home. And so it's almost like it wasn't time for me then to be able to leave, even though um even though I could have, I was kicked out of the home. I could have walked away from Mormonism forever, but it was like, I didn't have the tools yet. I I didn't, I didn't have a sense of self yet. I didn't have an idea that I could build that in my own life. And so I go back to Mormonism and I go to BYU and I get married in the temple and I do the best I can. And I nuance what I can until I finally get to the point where it's like, I, I think I can do this on my own better than in the community. And then I take a step away, but it makes you think then was Mormonism the thing that gave me the safety, the love of and belonging, the esteem when I'm young women's president or I'm seminary teacher or whatever, did Mormonism give me the tools to be able to leave Mormonism? It's what a great question. No, no, it's a great question. I'm, um, as you were saying all that, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to think through how to, how to explain that. So Mormonism, um, I come from a working class family. My, my mom was a nurse's aide at first. She ended up going back to school in her uh, mid-late 30s to become an LPN. My dad was just, uh, he worked for a, a asphalt company working road maintenance and he worked himself up into being the foreman of the quarry. And so they both really worked their butts off. But as a kid, you go back to the early photos and we're in really poor clothes. We lived in a really small house in the worst part of our town, which was still a nice town, but the very worst of the town, we were the kind of the poor kids in the town. And um, when I joined Mormonism, it took a guy who was just average C student, uh, going to college, but didn't end up finishing. I dropped out and it took me and it kind of gave me like a new narrative, uh, because, because Mormonism was something I was good at. And so 
being able to stand up and give talks and finding that, oh my goodness, I'm actually a decent public speaker. Um, showing up at things and people going like, man, that guy's always helping. He's always here. He's always doing the things he's supposed to. I would read books. Again, the books behind me, I'd read books. And when I'd go into a, a class, I was the guy in the class that had answers to the questions, right? And again, it's all privilege and it's all patriarchy and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. But at the time, it was a narrative that fed my ego. Mm -hmm. So it, you know, it gave me a sense of love and belonging that isn't really real, but it, you think it is at the time. It gives you a sense of esteem, although that also isn't exactly real. Mm -hmm. And the moment you don't fit in the box anymore, that goes away. Mm -hmm. But it allowed me to think that I was doing important things and hence my life had meaning. And it, so that encouraged me or gave me a safe space to kind of lean into some parts of this pyramid that I wouldn't have if I would have mm -hmm. never met Mormonism, right? Mm -hmm. I also believe the opposite's true, which is that the dysfunction of your religion also helps you. So whether the church is, we'll use Mormonism as an example, whether the church is good or whether it's true, I think it's perceived goodness and trueness or it's perceived dysfunction also prompts you to begin to seek new tools, better tools in other places. Does that make sense? Like Mormonism gives you some tools that allowed me to be, to move along in this pyramid and Mormonism's dysfunction caused me to look elsewhere and find better tools that helped me move along in this pyramid. Yeah, and that's so what I Heather says wrong. right here, that it was a mixed bag for me. Religion gave me some safe places, but it also stunted my growth in yeah. a lot of ways, too. And so the moment I read Miguel Ruiz, Four Agreements, the moment I read Eckhart Tolle or read Brene Brown, I sensed like, oh, these guys had told me that this little island was all the beautiful stuff. And then I step off the island and I realized that there's even more beautiful stuff, more beautiful than what was on the island and far more uh, diverse in breadth and scope. And I go looking around and I'm like, wow, like I wish I would have known much earlier that the world was this gorgeous out here and that there was so much beautiful information and so many uh, opportunities for dynamic learning to occur. And, and so the, the religion traps you from seeing that, but once you see it, the, the juxtaposition of what one claimed to be and what it actually was versus what you see when you look outside of it was absolutely a game changer. Mm. Yeah, it does. It does bring up the argument that that kind of <laughs> translated in my brain is, is that, um, oh, I just lost it. Oh, this is what happens. You, you know, you're I, so good. You write down things as we're going. Uh, so little notes here it. there, but no, I forget. And things I, too. I, I'll come back to it. I'll come back to it. So, uh, here's a follow-up question, which is, should we be anti-theists? So the Beyond God and Religion um, guest that we had a couple of weeks ago was an outward anti-theist. So not just an atheist, an anti-theist being, even if this God was real, I would fight against it. And I would just be in hell just saying, you know, F you, right? Like we should, not only do I not believe in your God, but I'm going to actively fight against your God, right? It's pretty spicy. And I've been thinking about that ever since that he was talking about it, because his arguments for being an anti-theist, you and I would both agree with. Even in the episode, we were both like, yeah, I, I get your arguments. Like we we, we get the, the dis dysfunction and we get all of that. Um, oh, I just I just thought of it. So I'm going to write it down. I just thought of my last thought. 
but I'm going to finish this thought. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so my question with God is, should we, let, like, let's say you're an atheist and you don't believe any of the, uh, any of this is real. Should we be anti-theists or is God something that we have to outgrow and transcend rather than throw out? Because for a lot of people, um, and this is the reason you and I are no different in, from this because we are humans like everyone else and we have fears about meaninglessness and isolation and death. And the thing, the tool that we've come up with as primates is to create stories about God and the afterlife and all these things. And it helps us be productive. It kind of pushes things off in our subconscious so that we can be productive or else we get so nihilistic that it's like, what's the point of anything? I'm just going to lay down in bed and evolution doesn't want you to do that because you're not up and active and building your ego so that you can have sex and all these things. Right. And so should we be pushing on people's belief in God if it's the thing that gives them psychological safety to be productive? Or do we just have to push against it, even though, you know, it's going to be hard for people? Um, because this at this stage of modern humanity, believing in some of these kind of fundamentalist gods and religions are too dangerous that we're just going to have to say, I'm sorry, this makes you feel safe, but we can't let you, like, we're going to push you on this. Yeah. What do you think about that? All right. So gorgeous question. I'm, I want you to go into your written down point first. And I promise I've got okay. your question written down. I won't forget it. Okay. So my first question was going back to, is it real? Um, I really love that, that idea of, is it real? Because, because like you're saying, a lot of religions, they do this hierarchy of needs, right? You're, if you're in Mormonism, it's a super productive people. You're going to have a surplus. You're going to have your food needs taken care of. You're going to have a Bishop storehouse. It's, it's built into the system. You're going to have some safety in this tribal thing. You're going to have love and belonging. You're going to, you're going to have some esteem as you, you know, give talks and you find that you're good at certain things and it's all built into the system. But like you're saying, it's built on a foundation that on a story that is provably not true. And so is it actually damaging to build a child's kind of hierarchy of needs on a foundation that can crumble when they read church history and then boom, it's faith crisis and you got to start all over again. So does it being real actually matter because otherwise you could lose it all on a kind of faulty foundation kind of thing. Let's take, let's take Santa Claus for a moment. Okay. Yeah. It's an easy one. Santa Claus was deeply important to me as a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a six-year-old, maybe as far as into a seven-year-old. And then one day somebody ruined my myth. Some kid on the school bus saw it as his job to set the world straight in my world. And he, he told me the truth. He destroyed my myth story. Mm -hmm. And yet I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait as a 20-year-old, a 21-year-old, 22-year-old with a, with a one-year-old and a two-year-old and a three-year-old. I couldn't wait to start the myth all over for somebody else. Mm. And it's, it's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. And it's not. And it's yeah. magic. Yeah. Uh -huh. and, it's, and it's not real magic. And it is real magic. And as a parent, I couldn't wait to put that myth back into practice. And I thoroughly enjoyed my children believing in the magic of Christmas. Why do I, why did I do that? 
Why did I go and take an untrue myth that served, if all honesty, it served probably very little purpose in my life. And yet it was so enjoyable to me. My memory of it was so enjoyable to me that I couldn't wait to re-implement a false myth. They're all false, of course. Mm -hmm. But a false myth as a parent of children. And I think that could be a two-hour conversation all by itself. Oh, Santa is a two-hour conversation. I chose not to do Santa, but I I go back and forth sometimes. um, Because like you're saying, there's this stage that you go through where you say, like, my specific religion is a myth. And then you go a few more years, do mushrooms a few more times, and then you realize it's all myth. The words are myth. The the sense of self is myth. It's all myth. And then at that point, there's this really cool shift you can make where you realize that everything is sandcastles. They're just, they they don't last. They're just these little structures and then they fall away and they're not going to last more than 10 seconds. Um, But then there's this cool thing that you can do is once you realize that it's all myth and you kind of make peace with the absurdity, you can go back and build sandcastles just for the fun of it. So it's almost like this, you know, this magic of childhood was so fun for you that you wanted to just go back, even you, even knowing that the sandcastle is going to fall, you wanted to just go back and build the sandcastle again with your kids. And I do think that there's some beauty to that too, to going back and realizing that this is all play. This is all sandcastles. This is all myth. So what games do you want to play? And you and I love playing the truth game and the conversation game. These are our favorite games, right? Um, so I, I go back and forth on Santa, but yeah, it, I, I, I've never called myself an anti-theist because of this concept of, of I don't know if I should be, uh, you know, I, I, if, if a concept of God is the thing that gives someone psychological safety, if it's the thing that gives them the sense of love and like, I am a divine child of God and I am loved and they need that. Right. Especially if they come from a place where they're not getting that love much elsewhere, they're not getting unconditional love elsewhere. Should I really be an anti-theist and point out how dumb their arguments are? Is that a compassionate thing to do? And some people say, yes, it is compassionate because they, you know, there are better foundations to build these needs that don't, you know, that just aren't so messy. But then do I know that they're going to be able to get there? And if they don't, then, you know, I don't know. I've never called myself an anti-theist because I get all wrapped up into this question of, of what do we do when people are playing God and, and it's, it's important for maybe where they are in their stage of, of needs. So, you know, you went back to your previous point. Yeah. Your first question sat there, but your previous point ties into the very question that we left hanging. Um, should, should we be anti-theist? Should we throw out God? And I think I, there's a native American, I probably said this in the podcast before. I, I'm sure I have. There's, there's a Native American tribe somewhere where, and it, it, it's not healthy behavior either. Like it has its own problems, but the, they, the, uh, the elders of the tribe, the adults of the tribe dress up in costume like scary creatures. And once a year they rummage into the living quarters, say a tent. I don't know what the quarters is. A, 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 
wigwam or whatever, but they, they rummage into the, the living space of a child with his family or whatever. And they scare the kid, rah, you know, and, and act like they're going to attack him or whatever. And then when the kid turns, I don't know what it is. There's a specific age, like 16 years old. They then grab the kid, pull him out. They beat him a little bit. And then they take their costume off and they show the kid that they're just one of the adults in the tribe and they're not a scary monster. From that point forward, the kid then joins the other side of the coin. He dresses up every year and scares the other children of the Native American tribe. And um, there needs to be in, in every healthy society that values, uh, that values working your way up the pyramid. There has to be, on the front end, you have to be given simple stories that are absurd to adults. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can't tell children that there's three pedophiles who live within a half mile of your home. You have to tell children there's a boogeyman who lives underneath your bed. You have to. If you, if you tell your children there are three pedophiles within three blocks of your home, that, that the study, the research shows that on some level that might be damaging. So you tell your children that there's evil, but in an absurd way. Every healthy religion needs to have something like that on the front end. And, and we're saying religion, but really it's just the way we give children stories so mm-hmm. they can begin to make meaning. Again, baby pops out. That, that baby doesn't even know it's human. It just is the observer behind the eyes. It can't communicate any of its needs. It can't yeah. tell anybody what's going on. And I, right. I read the other day that like it's like 40% of your brain is is created in the womb and then 60% is like that first couple of years out of the yeah. womb. So it really is that like more of our brain is created just in the matrix of whatever's going on yeah. because we need that then in the actual womb, which makes us really yeah. different from other animals. So we actually do in some ways have to raise our kids in some kind of matrix because you can't, you have to give them something for their brain to fill in and to give them that structure. But then you hope later on they can transcend it in some way. Because, because kids don't have the, so in other words, if I tell you there's three pedophiles who live within uh, three blocks of your home, you recognize because of your, because of the life you've lived, what the degree of risk that probably is. And you know that chances are you could go out of your house walk somewhere, walk back and 999,000 out of whatever, 99.9999% of the time, it's going to work out just great. But babies and little children don't have that life experience. So we don't give them the cold facts because they don't have the context to put them in. So we put, we put Mr. Rogers neighborhood in front of them because it's a way that they can start to learn what the world is, but in a really safe mm-hmm way that begins to just build context on context. Mm-hmm. And so isn't that a weird system. thing as a parent? Isn't that a weird thing as like a parent and now you're a grandparent where like you do all this work where you you have you start I wouldn't say that we're both just like, oh, we are self-transcended. <clears throat> but we we de- definitely have both had peak experiences where we're tapping into that, right? And, and you can start to kind of transcend the matrix and you can do mushrooms and you can realize that it's all myth, but then you go back to the child and you have to almost like start it over because they can't see where you are. They can't even comprehend where you are. And it's, it's like, it's like, I, I find myself telling them stories that like, 
you know, going back and telling some of the same stories, even though um, I'm in a totally different place with it, because you can't avoid kind of starting over with, you're going to have to learn all this and you're going to have to build all this and you're going to have to build your ego and all of this is good. And then hopefully we can maybe transcend some of it and see that you don't have to be driven by what people think of you, you know, later on in life. Yeah. I used to think that cartoons for children was just a way to occupy them so that us parents could have a free minute to do something. And the older I get, the more I look at cart good cartoons as really being formative to helping children develop an, a, a, con a contextual awareness of how the world works, right? Traffic lights and the wheels on the bus go round and round, the wipers on the bus, you know, like they're learning things that they have to be learned. And this is, as of now, the best way we have to do it. Repetition, animation, concepts that are entertaining, but also teach a principle. The, what I wanted to get to was that a healthy societal system has to start off giving children absurd myths. And it also has to um, help them transition to adulthood with, with these specific moments that pull the curtain back from the great wizard of Oz and say, it's not what we told you. Mm. It's something else, but you needed that. Don't like, don't consider us as having deceived you. You needed that. But now, now you're old enough that we want to welcome you into adulthood. Like all, every system has a spot where it sends the native American off into the woods by himself. Uh, um, once in a lifetime, you're supposed to make a trip to Mecca. Like everybody has these things where you get away from the way you normally do things and do something different. And it's supposed to wake you up to uh, the second half of life. And, and the trouble is the unhealthy religions keep pretending that the base myth is true and never invite you to enter the second half of life. Mm, and, and so yeah. we've got to figure out ways to do that. Yeah. That's where religion's going to, be the thing that stops you from growing because it's like, it's trying to force you to be perpetually eight years old with how you saw the world when you were eight years old, you know, just very black and white. And this is the truth. And these are the things that I believe and blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. So that's where religion gets stuck. So I do think it goes back to, we've had, we've had this conversation a couple of times where we um, talk about how maybe this is the first time in, in kind of American human history where, where we have enough story and security and safety and love and belonging and society and tools and opportunities for kids to have that feeling of accomplishment. But like for my kid, you know, it's at the local dojo and maybe there's enough of that accessible by society that you don't have to, you know, depend on religion and God, because eventually that's going to stop your progression in some way, at least in, you know, in the high demand religions that, that we come from where it kind of tries to keep you yeah. from transcending the stories that, you know, need to be transcended at some point. So high school gives you a diploma and then you are encouraged to leave that myth and to go to college. And then college gives you a diploma and you leave that myth and you go into the workforce, right? Um, you go to the dojo, you get a belt, you get a brown belt. And that mm -hmm. brown belt symbolizes that you have mastered this part of the journey. 
and you now are encouraged to step into the next phase of life. Um, healthy systems, healthy myth, healthy religion tells you at some point that it was all bullshit to begin with and that it was only a stepping stone to something else. And the unhealthy religions, and it's most of them, trick you into thinking it's the end all be all and you never move on. Right. Like, like Mormonism, you go to the temple and it, it's a beautiful, the, Mormonism has the perfect opportunity to do it mm. and it fails. Mm. It reroutes you back to it. Yeah. And then it goes back to our discussions about um, without the dogma, are people as productive to get all of the physiological needs met because there's so much surplus and then it's no. And then, they, you know, so if you try to get a religion, that's just so nuanced that, Oh, we're just, we're just um, telling the kids these stories, but they'll grow out of, you know, the literal interpretation. It's like those churches fail because it doesn't tap into that super productive mode that you get when you're, when you're very zealous and, and dogmatic. And so it's like, you have to pick your poison, but Anyway, if someone asked you, Bill, if you're at a party and someone asked you, you know, hey, I know that you, um, you know, you're very critical of religion. Are you an anti-theist? What would you say? Are you an anti-theist? I'm an anti, um, I want to say I'm an anti-high demand fundamentalist religion, <laughs> but that's not true. Yeah. I have to, I have to pull it back way further than that. Cause I mm. think even religions that aren't considered high demand fundamentalist religions are causing deep trauma and turmoil in people's lives. I am all for healthy myths that are even absurd for the youngest of ages and for any system that tries to manipulate its members into thinking that it is the, uh, the highest echelon of achievement, of awakening. I am completely against every one of them. Yeah. So would you say you're not an anti-theist? I, I don't, <laughs> I don't think I could ever say I'm an anti-theist and be comfortable with that. Yeah. I haven't said it either. And what I, if I were asked about it, so for, for, Heather, and I'm so, anti-theist, I don't believe in God, right? I don't believe right, there's like, a being. Atheist, you know, I don't believe in God. Anti-theist meaning, um, not only do I not believe in God, but we shouldn't believe in God, and I'm going to fight against this belief. Um, my my fear with that is that I do think for a lot of people, God is a concept that you have to outgrow and not throw out because it is so embedded in some of those earlier stages, whether that be if you're in a religious community or maybe you just, like I was talking about, um on tiktok i think that people who are tend towards fundamentalism have a high need for closure and so maybe it's doing a lot psychologically for you and do i want you do i want to pull the rug out from under you so much psychologically that you kill yourself like no i don't want to do that because some people that actually happens to some people you know and so i'm i'm more like let's outgrow this it's like being anti santa claus you know it's like you cannot it's like, I, I don't do Santa Claus or whatever, but to be anti-Santa Claus, it's like, I don't know. That just seems a little harsh for, for people who find that to be just a really great thing in their family. I don't know. You, know, you make a good point. Atheist is you individually don't believe in God. Anti-theist is that you don't believe 
that it's good for people to have a belief in God generally. Yeah, just I'm against this. I'm against yeah. anyone's belief in God. Like I'm and I a just, Santa Claus, but I'm not anti-Santa. And I actually think you get further, meaning like if you want someone, for example, to lose their belief in God, not that, you know, that missionary language is kind of icky for me now, but if that was your goal, I think it's actually even a faster path to give them the tools to be able to outgrow God than to just say, than to just shame them for how much God is wrapped up into their sense of safety and, and belonging and all the stuff that it does for our psychology and our fear of death and all of that. And I, I think you, I, I think it's a better way to go about things to give people tools and then they can outgrow whatever unhealthy version of God or religion they have in their lives. And when people are ready, it, it, you and I already know this, it's not healthy to strip someone's beliefs away. They have to come to it naturally. It has to be their choice. And so like you say, you just make it safe to explore ideas. And the people who are ready to wake up in this moment will. The people who aren't won't. And maybe those people will be ready in a different moment and they will. Yeah. Um, so my last question was, is atheism a privilege? Because if you can get safety, love and belonging, story, community, all these things without religion, does that mean necessarily that you are privileged? Have you ever seen the TV show Vikings? I have not, no. Okay, it's really good. But it's interesting. You go back in time to the 800s, and you see these societies that are small towns, basically, right? You got one church in the middle, and you got 300 people in the tribe. And go, not going to church is not an option. You no. will be killed. Yeah, not it's going. not good so for if, you. No. So if you're in the tiny town of 300, and you don't want to believe in the myth you won't be in the tribe in any sort of secure position for very long. Um, and so there's all this, and again, it's just a TV show, but it's based on historical context. And there's, you see how much goes into political decisions of one kingdom versus another and how hard these decisions are because you have to maintain the trust of your people that you believe in. We all believe in our God. It's our God against their God. And you're smart enough to think outside the box and go like, mm, maybe not, you know? And all of that, I don't know, all that plays out in such a way, I guess I, I say all that to say that you're 100% right. It's only in 2023 with 20 years of the internet behind us, 25 years of the internet behind us, 30 years of the internet behind us, that we finally are in a position where like if somebody says something that isn't true, you're like, eh, I don't have to believe that. It's just bullshit. Yeah. And that really is a position of privilege. Yeah. And even in 2023, some people in some countries still don't have that. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. So I have my last thought here and I did something I thought was kind of cool. Ready for this? I had chat GPT go through all of Abraham Maslow's journals and I asked chat GPT to answer a question of, okay, we've been listening to this. We've been downloading this. What can we do if we want to make a move towards self-transcendence? What would Abraham Maslow say? You ready? So this is ChatGPT, Abraham Maslow, giving us our final thought here. As Abraham Maslow, I believe that self-transcendence, the highest peak of human development, can be reached by individuals who have already satisfied their lower needs, such as physiological needs, safety, blah, blah, blah. 
Um, Self-transcendence involves going beyond oneself and connecting with something greater than oneself. It can be achieved through experiences such as peak experience, moments of, moments of awe, and spiritual experiences. In order to reach this level, individuals must have a strong sense of purpose and meaning in life, as well as a willingness to transcend their own ego and personal desires. It is important to note that self-transcendence is not a goal that can be achieved through conscious effort, but rather a natural outcome of personal growth and development. I love that part. Therefore, individuals who are focused solely on achieving self-transcendence may find it elusive, whereas those who focus on fulfilling their lower needs and pursuing their passions will ultimately find themselves naturally transcending themselves. In essence, self-transcendence is about finding a sense of interconnectedness with the world and all of its beings. It requires a deep sense of empathy, compassion, and love for others, as well as a willingness to contribute to the greater good. Through this process, individuals can experience a sense of oneness with the universe and a deep sense of purpose and fulfillment. That's beautiful. That's great. I was just getting ready to ask ChatGPT to consider all of Abraham Maslow's written and suggest if there's a stage higher oh. than self-transcendence. Let's see what it says. <laughs> That's interesting. But yeah, I, my favorite part of that is that if you make it a goal, I am going to go to self-transcendence as a goal. And then I'm going to get there that um, it's going to be elusive because that's a very goal oriented way of looking at it. Whereas if you actually focus on how can I increase my moments of awe? How can I increase spiritual experiences and peak experiences? How can I focus more on my passions? How can I serve others more? If you actually kind of work around it, you'll find yourself kind of moving into that space. It's not something that you can just like check off on a list. And if you're trying to do that, you're going to find it elusive, which I like. Mm, that is good. Um, it is interesting how intelligent chat GPT is and how easily it can take pieces of information, large chunks of information that are elsewhere uh, in the internet. Uh, even just books, right? Like there's so many books that are now text versions are available. Mm. Um very interesting. I asked it two different ways. And I was trying to see if it would suggest anything. No. Uh, however, it's worth noting that some spiritual traditions and philosophical systems suggest that there may be levels of consciousness or states of being beyond self-transcendence. For example, some schools of Eastern philosophy and mysticism describe states of unity consciousness or non-dual awareness, which transcend the individual self and connect with universal or divine consciousness. Mm. Okay. All right. It's interesting. It, 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 I, I do, again, self-transcendence is still trying to make something other than you, but which you're a part of better. Yeah. And, and it just kind of overflows from you. It's not like a goal oriented thing as much. But once you realize it's all myth, that also may not matter. There may be something bigger than even that, mm -hmm. which is to some extent nihilism to just know that nothing means anything and it's just energy bouncing into each other. You know what I mean? And I don't know, but, but that also isn't as helpful as self-transcendence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. It, I, I was doing some study on death terror management theory, which we have to do. I don't think we've done a podcast on it. We have to do once, which really what's, goes. What's the in... lady's name? The, the, the expert in that field. Oh, I don't she know. She died. I don't What's know. That? I don't know. 
I don't remember. Um, okay. I'm just I'm just kind of diving into it again. I, I came across it in school and I kind of wanted to go back to it with kind of where I am now. And um, it's just interesting to see how much of what we do is because we fear death. And one of the things that it said is that maybe some of our goals. So like the first stage you go through is is realizing that you may not have an afterlife and having to face that. But then we also have all these subconscious ways of making ourselves immortal like having children and having a posterity and having a business that outlasts you and having a positive effect on the world. All of these are kind of more subtle ways of being immortal. And what if actually the best thing to do is give up your need to have a positive effect on the world because it's also being driven by your fear of death and mortality. Yeah. But then it's like, is that, but do you want to do that? Because then it's not as good for the world. And then it's like, well, does it matter? Maybe not, but should you? Probably. <laughs> Side tangent. I just looked it up while you were talking. It was uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Does that ring? Oh, back? yes, yes, yes. She does the five stages of grief. Yeah, except yes, that uh -huh. when she got to her own deathbed, she said, everything I ever thought on this subject mm. is bullshit. Okay, well, now we have to, well, we should do a death terror management with five stages of grief. Put that on our to-do list. We definitely have to do that. A dangerous ideas, by the way. Yeah, Kubler and dangerous. Ross. Yeah. Elizabeth Kubler Ross. Dangerous ideas. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. All right. That's it from me. Fun Great little job, episode. Brent. And um really interesting to just see. Um, I didn't find out until like a year or two ago that there was that this was even something that Maslow had gone into, even though I've seen the pyramid, you know, a million times. So it's just fun to to dig into that again. So, awesome, uh, excellent. By the way, you do such a great job of getting your thoughts out in a way that when we get on this podcast, you can run through them and they're coherent, they're articulate. Uh, I just really appreciate the skill set you bring to the table, and um, grateful for you, folks. Uh, again, show Brit show Brit a, a, a vote of thanks. Kind of, uh, I guess I don't maybe that's not the right word. I'm using kind of a Mormon language, right? <laughs> All those in favor. <laughs> But please go to almostawaken.org. Uh, send us five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month. It really does go a long way to uh, Brit and to a lesser degree myself feeling like we're we're accomplishing something here at that uh, self-actualization level. <laughs> and uh, we're excited to bring you really interesting topics that help you on the self-transcendence level too. Yeah, so. that is that is like the tough part of life is that even though we do this just as such as such a service of love and because we enjoy it, we actually do sometimes like have to feed our children. You know, yeah. <laughs> we do have to ask to be able to value our time that um, goes into these podcasts. So thank you everyone for following along the people who were um, live and it really just adds a lot when you're live and doing comments as we go, it, it adds a lot to the episode. So thank you for that. Awesome. Have a great day, Britt. You're amazing. Thanks, Bill. You too. Okay. Take it easy, everybody. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.